Nero, Part Four of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Nero, Part Four, Paragraphs Forty-One to Fifty-Seven. Being roused at last by numerous proclamations of Vindex, treating him with reproaches and contempt, he, in a letter to the Senate, exhorted them to avenge his wrongs and those of the Republic, desiring them to excuse his not appearing in the Senate-house, because he had got cold. But nothing so much galled him as to find himself railed at as a pitiful harper, and, instead of Nero, styled Aenobarbus, which being his family name, since he was upbraided with it, he declared that he would resume it and lay aside the name he had taken by adoption. Passing by the other accusations as wholly groundless, he earnestly refuted that of his want of skill in an art upon which he had bestowed so much pains, and in which he had arrived at such perfection, asking frequently those about him if they knew any one who was a more accomplished musician." but being alarmed by messengers after messengers of ill news from Gaul, he returned in great consternation to Rome. On the road his mind was somewhat relieved by observing the frivolous omen of a Gaulish soldier defeated and dragged by the hair by a Roman knight, which was sculptured on a monument, so that he leapt for joy and adored the heavens. Even then he made no appeal either to the Senate or people, but calling together some of the leading men at his own house, he held a hasty consultation upon the present state of affairs, and then, during the remainder of the day, carried them about with him to view some musical instruments of a new invention, which were played by water, exhibiting all the parts and discoursing upon the principles and difficulties of the contrivance, which, he told them, he intended to produce in the theatre, if Vindex would give him leave. Soon afterwards he received intelligence that Galba and the Spaniards had declared against him, upon which he fainted, and losing his reason lay a long time speechless, apparently dead. As soon as recovered from this state of stupefaction, he tore his clothes, beat his head, crying out, "'It is all over with me!' His nurse endeavouring to comfort him, and telling him that the like things had happened to other princes before him, he replied, "'I am beyond all example wretched!' for I have lost an empire whilst I am still living. He nevertheless abated nothing of his luxury and inattention to business. Nay, on the arrival of good news from the provinces, he, at a sumptuous entertainment, sung with an air of merriment some jovial verses upon the leaders of the revolt, which were made public, and accompanied them with suitable gestures. Being carried privately to the theatre, he sent word to an actor who was applauded by the spectators, that he had it all his own way, now that he himself did not appear on the stage. At the first breaking out of these troubles, it is believed that he had formed many designs of a monstrous nature, although conformable enough to his natural disposition. These were to send new governors and commanders to the provinces and the armies, and employ assassins to butcher all the former governors and commanders, as men unanimously engaged in a conspiracy against him, to massacre the exiles in every quarter, and all the Gaulish population in Rome, the former lest they should join the insurrection, the latter as privy to the designs of their countrymen and ready to support them, to abandon Gaul itself, to be wasted and plundered by his armies, to poison the whole senate at a feast, 
to fire the city and then let loose the wild beasts upon the people, in order to impede their stopping the progress of the flames. But being deterred from the execution of these designs, not so much by remorse of conscience as by despair of being able to effect them, and judging an expedition into Gaul necessary, he removed the consuls from their office before the time of its expiration was arrived, and in their room assumed the consulship himself, without a colleague, as if the fates had decreed that Gaul should not be conquered but by a consul. Upon assuming the Fasces, after an entertainment at the palace, as he walked out of the room leaning on the arms of some of his friends, he declared that as soon as he arrived in the province he would make his appearance amongst the troops, unarmed, and do nothing but weep, and that after he had brought the mutineers to repentance, he would the next day, in the public rejoicings, sing songs of triumph, which he must now, without loss of time, apply himself to compose. In preparing for this expedition, his first care was to provide carriages for his musical instruments, and machinery to be used upon the stage, to have the hair of the concubines he carried with him dressed in the fashion of men, and to supply them with battle-axes and Amazonian bucklers. He summoned the city tribes to enlist, but no qualified persons appearing, he ordered all masters to send a certain number of slaves, the best they had, not excepting their stewards and secretaries. He commanded the several orders of the people to bring in a fixed proportion of their estates, as they stood in the censor's books, all tenants of houses and mansions to pay one year's rent forthwith into the exchequer, and with unheard-of strictness, would receive only new coin of the purest silver and the finest gold, insomuch that most people refused to pay, crying out unanimously that he ought to squeeze the informers, and oblige them to surrender their gains. The general odium in which he was held received an increase by the great scarcity of corn, and an occurrence connected with it. For, as it happened just at that time, there arrived from Alexandria a ship which was said to be freighted with dust for the wrestlers belonging to the emperor. This so much inflamed the public rage that he was treated with the utmost abuse and scurrility. Upon the top of one of his statues was placed the figure of a chariot, with a Greek inscription, that, now indeed he had a race to run, let him be gone. A little bag was tied about another with a ticket containing these words, what could I do? Truly thou hast merited the sack. Some person likewise wrote on the pillars in the forum that he had even woke the cocks with his singing, and many in the night-time, pretending to find fault with their servants, frequently called for a vindex. He was also terrified with manifest warnings, both old and new, arising from dreams, auspices, and omens. He had never been used to dream before the murder of his mother. After that event he fancied in his sleep that he was steering a ship, and that the rudder was forced from him, that he was dragged by his wife Octavia into a prodigiously dark place, and was at one time covered over with a vast swarm of winged ants, and at another surrounded by the national images which were set up near Pompey's theatre, and hindered from advancing farther, that a Spanish genet he was fond of had his hinder parts so changed as to resemble those of an ape, and having his head only left unaltered, neighed very harmoniously. The doors of the mausoleum of Augustus flying open of themselves, there issued from it a voice calling on him by name. The lares, being adorned with fresh garlands on the calends, the first of January, fell down during the preparations for sacrificing to them. While he was taking the omens, Sporus presented him with a ring, the stone of which had carved upon it the rape of Proserpine. 
when a great multitude of the several orders was assembled to attend at the solemnity of making vows to the gods, it was a long time before the keys of the capital could be found. And when, in a speech of his to the Senate against Vindex, these words were read, that the miscreants should be punished and soon make the end they merited, they all cried out, You will do it, Augustus. It was likewise remarked that the last tragic piece which he sung was Oedipus in exile, and that he fell as he was repeating this verse, Tanen manoge singamos meter pater, Wife, mother, father, force me to my end. Meanwhile, on the arrival of the news that the rest of the armies had declared against him, he tore to pieces the letters which were delivered to him at dinner, overthrew the table, and dashed with violence against the ground two favourite cups, which he called Homer's, because some of that poet's verses were cut upon them. Then, taking from Locusta a dose of poison which he put up in a golden box, he went into the civilian gardens, and thence dispatching a trusty freedman to Ostia, with orders to make ready a fleet, he endeavoured to prevail with some tribunes and centurions of the Praetorian guards to attend him in his flight, but part of them showing no great inclination to comply, others absolutely refusing, and one of them crying out aloud, Usquadeone mori miserum est. Say, is it then so sad a thing to die? He was in great perplexity whether he should submit himself to Galba, or apply to the Parthians for protection, or else appear before the people dressed in mourning, and upon the rostra in the most piteous manner beg pardon for his past misdemeanours, and, if he could not prevail, request of them to grant him at least the government of Egypt. A speech to this purpose was afterwards found in his writing-case. But it is conjectured that he durst not venture upon this project for fear of being torn to pieces before he could get to the forum. Deferring, therefore, his resolution until the next day, he awoke about midnight, and finding the guards withdrawn, he leapt out of bed and sent round for his friends. But none of them vouchsafing any message in reply, he went with a few attendants to their houses. The doors being everywhere shut and no one giving him any answer, he returned to his bedchamber whence those who had the charge of it had all now eloped, some having gone one way and some another, carrying off with them his bedding and box of poison. He then endeavoured to find Spicillus, the gladiator, or some one to kill him, but not being able to procure any one. What, said he, have I then neither friend nor foe? And immediately ran out as if he would throw himself into the Tiber. But, this furious impulse subsiding, he wished for some place of privacy where he might collect his thoughts, and his freedman Phaon, offering him his country house, between the Salarian and Nomenton roads, about four miles from the city, he mounted a horse, barefoot as he was and in his tunic, only slipping over it an old soiled cloak, with his head muffled up and a handkerchief before his face, and four persons only to attend him, of whom Sporus was one. He was suddenly struck with horror by an earthquake, and by a flash of lightning which darted full in his face, and heard from the neighbouring camp the shouts of the soldiers wishing his destruction and prosperity to Galba. He also heard a traveller they met on the road say, They are in pursuit of Nero, and another ask, Is there any news in the city about Nero? Uncovering his face when his horse was started by the scent of a carcass which lay in the road, he was recognised, and saluted by an old soldier, who had been discharged from the guards. When they came to the lane which turned up to the house, they quitted their horses, 
and with much difficulty he wound among bushes and briars, and along a track through a bed of rushes, over which they spread their cloaks for him to walk on. Having reached a wall at the back of the villa, Theon advised him to hide himself a while in a sand-pit, when he replied, "'I will not go underground alive.' Staying there some little time, while preparations were made for bringing him privately into the villa, he took up some water out of a neighbouring tank in his hand to drink, saying, "'This is Nero's distilled water.' Then, his cloak having been torn by the brambles, he pulled out the thorns which stuck in it. At last, being admitted, creeping upon his hands and knees through a hole made for him in the wall, he lay down in the first closet he came to, upon a miserable pallet with an old coverlet thrown over it, and, being both hungry and thirsty, though he refused some coarse bread that was brought him, he drank a little warm water. All who surrounded him, now pressing him to save himself from the indignities which were ready to befall him, he ordered a pit to be sunk before his eyes, of the size of his body, and the bottom to be covered with pieces of marble put together, if any could be found about the house, and water and wood to be got ready for immediate use about his corpse, weeping at everything that was done, and frequently saying, "'What an artist is now about to perish!' Meanwhile letters being brought in by a servant belonging to Phaon, he snatched them out of his hand, and there read, that he had been declared an enemy by the Senate, and that search was making for him, that he might be punished according to the ancient custom of the Romans. He then inquired what kind of punishment that was, and being told that the practice was to strip the criminal naked and scourge him to death, while his neck was fastened within a forked stake, he was so terrified that he took up two daggers which he had brought with him, and after feeling the points of both, put them up again, saying, The fatal hour is not yet come. One while he begged of Sporus to wail and lament, another while he entreated that one of them would set an example by killing himself, and then again he condemned his own want of resolution in these words, I yet live to my shame and disgrace. This is not becoming for Nero. It is not becoming. Thou oughtest in such circumstances to have a good heart. Come then, courage, man. The horsemen, who had received orders to bring him away alive, were now approaching the house. As soon as he heard them coming, he uttered with a trembling voice the following verse. Hippon, mokupodon, ampictipos oatabale. The noise of swift-heeled steeds assails my ears. He drove a dagger into his throat, being assisted in the act by Epaphroditus, his secretary. A centurion bursting in just as he was half dead, and applying his cloak to the wound, pretending that he was come to his assistance, he made no other reply but this, "'Tis too late,' and, "'Is this your loyalty?' Immediately after pronouncing these words he expired, with his eyes fixed and starting out of his head, to the terror of all who beheld him. He had requested of his attendants, as the most essential favour, that they would let no one have his head, but that by all means his body might be burnt entire. And this Achaelus, Galba's freedman, granted. He had but a little before been discharged from the prison into which he had been thrown, when the disturbances first broke out. The expenses of his funeral amounted to two hundred thousand sesterces, 
the bed upon which his body was carried to the pile and burnt being covered with the white robes interwoven with gold which he had worn upon the calends of january preceding his nurses ecloge and alexandra with his concubine acte deposited his remains in the tomb belonging to the family of the domitii which stands upon the top of the hill of the gardens and is to be seen from the campus martius in that monument a coffin of porphyry with an altar of marble of luna over it is enclosed by a wall built of stone brought from Thassos. In stature he was a little below the common height. His skin was foul and spotted, his hair inclined to yellow, his features were agreeable rather than handsome, his eyes grey and dull, his neck was thick, his belly prominent, his legs very slender, his constitution sound. For though excessively luxurious in his mode of living, he had in the course of fourteen years only three fits of sickness, which were so slight that he neither forbore the use of wine, nor made any alteration in his usual diet. In his dress and the care of his person he was so careless that he had his hair cut in rings one above another, and when in a kaya he let it grow long behind, and he generally appeared in public in the loose dress which he used at table, with a handkerchief about his neck and without either a girdle or shoes. He was instructed when a boy in the rudiments of almost all the liberal sciences, but his mother diverted him from the study of philosophy as unsuited to one destined to be an emperor, and his preceptor, Seneca, discouraged him from reading the ancient orators, that he might longer secure his devotion to himself. Therefore, having a turn for poetry, he composed verses, both with pleasure and ease, nor did he, as some think, publish those of other writers as his own. Several little pocket-books and loose sheets have come into my possession which contain some well-known verses in his own hand, and written in such a manner that it was very evident, from the blotting and interlining, that they had not been transcribed from a copy, nor dictated by another, but were written by the composer of them. He had likewise great taste for drawing and painting, as well as for moulding statues in plaster. But above all things he most eagerly coveted popularity being the rival of every man who obtained the applause of the people for anything he did. It was the general belief that after the crowns he won by his performances on the stage, he would the next lustrum have taken his place among the wrestlers at the Olympic Games, for he was continually practising that art, nor did he witness the gymnastic games in any part of Greece otherwise than sitting upon the ground in the stadium, as the umpires do and if a pair of wrestlers happened to break the bounds, he would with his own hands drag them back into the centre of the circle. Because he was thought to equal Apollo in music and the sun in chariot-driving, he resolved also to imitate the achievements of Hercules, and they say that a lion was got ready for him to kill, either with a club or with a close hug, in view of the people in the amphitheatre, which he was to perform naked. Towards the end of his life he publicly vowed that if his power in the state was securely re-established, he would, in the spectacles which he intended to exhibit in honour of his success, include a performance upon organs, as well as upon flutes and bagpipes, and on the last day of the games would act in the play, and take the part of Turnus, as we find it in Virgil. And there are some who say that he put to death the player Paris as a dangerous rival. He had an insatiable desire to immortalise his name, and acquire a reputation which should last through all succeeding ages, but it was capriciously directed. 
He therefore took from several things and places their former appellations, and gave them new names, derived from his own. He called the month of April Neroneus, and designed changing the name of Rome into that of Neropolis. He held all religious rites in contempt, except those of the Syrian goddess, but at last he paid her so little reverence that he made water upon her, being now engaged in another superstition, in which only he obstinately persisted. For having received from some obscure plebeian a little image of a girl, as a preservative against plots, and discovered a conspiracy immediately after, he constantly worshipped his imaginary protectress as the greatest amongst the gods, offering to her three sacrifices daily. He was also desirous to have it supposed that he had, by revelations from this deity, a knowledge of future events. A few months before he died, he attended a sacrifice according to the Etruscan rites, but the omens were not favourable. He died in the thirty-second year of his age, upon the same day on which he had formerly put Octavia to death, and the public joy was so great upon the occasion that the common people ran about the city with caps upon their heads. Some, however, were not wanting, who for a long time decked his tomb with spring and summer flowers. Sometimes they placed his image upon the rostra, dressed in robes of state. At another they published proclamations in his name as if he were still alive, and would shortly return to Rome and take vengeance on all his enemies. Vologesus, king of the Parthians, when he sent ambassadors to the Senate to renew his alliance with the Roman people, earnestly requested that due honour should be paid to the memory of Nero, and to conclude when twenty years afterwards, at which time I was a young man, some person of obscure birth gave himself out for Nero, that name secured him so favourable a reception from the Parthians that he was very zealously supported, and it was with much difficulty that they were prevailed upon to give him up. End of Nero <laughs>